And I, I don't think it's the biggest idea in the world. I think it's embraceable by everybody here. And the big idea is this. Let God love you lots and lots and lots so that you can turn around and love children with the love you've gotten from God. Does that sound biblical enough? No heresy in there? Are we okay, Dave? Okay. It's a big idea, calling this message series, and we're going to go through the entire Lord's Prayer over a few days. It's called Hand-Me-Down Child Care. As children of God, let God love and care for you so that you can turn around and hand down that same love to children in your life. And I'm purposefully calling it child care in the message. And I'm not trying to say this, these are the people that you hand off your little ones to when you go to work. Not that kind of thing. I'm talking about the care of children in the broad sense. And I'm purposefully avoiding saying hand-me-down parenting because I'm going after everybody who's here. I'm going after grandparents, uncles and aunts, current parents with the broods in the house and in the vans. I'm going after the singles. I'm going after the marrieds that don't have kids yet. I'm going after the marrieds who, who knows about their future. Um, I'm going after the widowers and the widows. Everybody, if you can hear the sound of my voice, I'm going after you. So, and by, by that, I just mean I'm not going to show up at your house with anything dangerous. It's just I'm saying... This message is for you. You too can really get loved by God and then turn around and share that love with a child. And for me, the scope of childhood is essentially if you didn't or couldn't drive yourself to church today, you're in that category for me. So I'm not just talking about the people who are upstairs. This includes youth as well, um, who are wonderful people. Um, so, But don't take it personally if I refer to you as a child you're probably somebody's child unless something's happened that I don't know about. That was a joke. Think about it. And wait for it. There it is. No, I'm kidding. All right. We will get to our scripture. I'm going to just pray first. Father, thank you so much. Father, I just, I love you so much. You are wonderful. God, you've been so good to me. And the way I understand things, I've only just begun to taste and see that the Lord is good. So I'm really excited about the rest of my life with you and everything that happens after that. God, I need your help. I struggled through the first message. It's just so big. So I need you to be big for me. I need you to be big for us. I need you to come by your spirit and make sense of this for everybody. God, I need you to lift up the name of Jesus. I want you to do the work so that the glory of Christ and the grace of Jesus is the flavor of this time together. So Lord, I just kneel down in my heart before you and say your kingdom come and your will be done. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's learn to love children the way God loves us by really letting God love us so that we can turn around and love children. 
in the world right now, I think this is true. This is how I see things. I think this is a defendable statement. The most dangerous kind of person to be or endangered kind of person to to be is a child. The kind of person, out of all the different ways you can describe people by race or gender or age, the most likely person to be killed without any consequences is a child, particularly in the womb. To date, I think the world has had somewhere around a billion abortions. It's very hard to track these things, and so I'm not totally sure. Some people think it should be more like 750 million. Other people estimate it could be well into a billion and a half. But an unimaginable number of people are missing from this world. And if it's true that it's somewhere around a billion people, that means that one out of every 10 people on the planet is missing about 7.1, 7.2 billion people in the world. So a conservative estimate is that one out of every 10 people is dead before they even got out of their moms. That really is unimaginable. The human brain cannot come to terms with what's been done. And this has all happened within the last 50, 60, 70 years. Even just China, a couple of years ago, officially announced that they'd performed 330 million abortions as a part of their one-child policy. So it's kind of against the law to have more than one child in China for a long time. They've relaxed that to, I think, a two-child policy. This is how I understand things are. They're starting to realize that the whole idea of only having one child can only last for so long until all of a sudden you just have a bunch of old people and nobody to take care of them or do work factories or be a nation. And so they've relaxed it a little bit to a two-child policy, but as a part of their one-child policy that they, they would have abortions on demand and sometimes demanded abortions. So it, it could turn out that if you were pregnant with your second child and they found out about it, people could show up at your door and then take you away and then return you without a child. But that's just a part of what we do worldwide. Worldwide. Um, We in the West, where the proliferation of abortions was born, um, we we are double-minded about children at best. We have a lot of laws to protect and encourage them, um, but we also have profound ways of endangering them. And really, this is a story of technology and the human heart. So first was developed this technology of contraception prevention, so otherwise known as the pill, which as far as I understand it is uh, people harvest the hormones from pregnant horse urine, and they distill it in a way that can be ingested by people and use that to control the hormone levels in a woman so that she doesn't um, either conceive or that a conceived uh, egg won't implant and so is just discarded at this during the cycle instead of becoming a human being and then along with that i'm not sure which came first would be abortion practices or safe abortion practices so that if a child manages to squeak through the contraception prevention techniques then they can be removed and 
on top of those technologies, we've also invented this thing called um, ultrasound, where you can see what's going on inside the mom when she's pregnant, which has made it possible to have select selective abortions. So two instances in the world that are very popular would be um, a gender selection abortion, which is super popular in Asia, where they are only allowed to have one child, and because of culture or religion, they want that child to be a boy, and so they find out that they're pregnant, and they're like, I can only have one, and it's a girl, and so we don't want this, let's get rid of this one, try again for a boy after that, which has led to the fact, this is a fact, that there's about 30 million more Chinese men in the world than there are Chinese women. So there's just 30 million Chinese men who won't have a female to partner with. It's, a, it's an amazing fact of life that God has really wired the world so that we about even out when it comes to men and women. It, it, it just kind of happens. I think slightly more men are born than women, but guys die easier. You know, dude perfect and stuff like that. You know, it's just... I was going to catch the ball from the, on the top of the roof and, well... We even out. Um, it's roughly even, but because of the proliferation of abortion as well as the technologies to find out what's inside, those things hit culture, and then all of a sudden you've got 30 million. So how many people are in Canada? Anybody want to shout out the number? How many Canadians? Sorry? About 36 million Canadians. 30 million more Chinese males and female because of this practice. Every one of them done on purpose. So that's kind of crazy. But also, more popular in the West, that stuff does happen in the West, okay? That, that does happen in Canada. It does happen in the U.S. But also, in, in North America, is more popular the idea of, um, it would be maybe a genetic selection abortion, there's actually two ways that this happens. Um, Planned Parenthood in the States, they tend to put up their, their shops in African-American or visible minority areas because they get more business that way. So they're de facto removing visible minorities from the United States at a faster rate than white people, which is really weird to think. I know there was a big hubbub about white supremacists in the state recently, in the States recently, but during all that news cycle, um, you know, about a thousand black babies were killed in clinics. It's just weird to think about. But really, what we really go after would be genetic abnormalities such as Down syndrome. So my wife and I are in this process where we want to adopt a child with Down syndrome. And in Canada, you just like can't do that. Because when it's discovered that a child has Down syndrome, either the parents want it and they keep it or they eliminate it. So it's just never born. And in Iceland, apparently, just really recently, a news story saying that they have achieved almost 100% elimination of Down syndrome births. So, and that's how it's phrased. We've achieved this. We're, the mission is almost accomplished. We've almost eradicated Down syndrome from Iceland, and it's not by finding a cure. So, to me, the most vulnerable person in the world, there's wars, there's genocides, there's holocausts, but re like the most vulnerable person in the world right now is a Down syndrome baby girl. Can absolutely be killed with no rep repercussions. 
And in fact, much of the West would say this is a necessity. You need to save yourself. You need to spare this child the hurt and the hardship. You need to spare yourself the hurt and the hardship. This is an important thing to do. So when Jackie and I were first pregnant out in Vancouver, um, we got our ultrasound done and the technician flagged that there was an odd foot to femur ratio. Okay, so this is, they measure your foot. This is a foot for anybody who's wondering what I'm talking about. And then they measure your femur, which is, is that this one or this one? Which one? This one? Okay. So they measure your foot, they measure your femur in the womb. And if that's unusual, they, they book an appointment for a counselor who talks about whether or not you'd like to abort the baby. Because their foot's the wrong size compared to their leg. Because it could be a sign for Down syndrome. So you could do the next step and screen for it with, a, with that thing where they stick the needle into the womb and take out the fluids and see what's going on there. Somebody probably knows the technical term for that, but that's okay. And, but the process is there to make it an easy choice and a comfortable choice to try again. So I'm not joking. And what I want to say is that people, societies, cultures, communities treat children the way they think God is. What we think about children, how we cheat children, is directly drawn from what we think God is like. That's the reality of it. When there is no God, weird things happen to how we treat children. We either get rid of them when they're going to be inconvenient, we start talking about how we can genetically manipulate them to be exactly the kind of kids we want. Weird things happen when there is no God. And worldwide, wherever there's faith, even like Islam, there's more kids. It's, it's interesting. Wherever people believe there is a God, and somehow it's connected to the Bible, there's more kids. Welcome to Steinbeck. When Jackie and I f- first conceived, we went to this uh, meeting where, where a bunch of people were meeting a team of doctors, and any one of them could be the ones that helped us deliver the baby. It was a team of people who might be at the hospital for us, and so they wanted to meet us, and we were supposed to meet them. And Jackie and I felt like we were some weird teenage pregnancy. Like, we were seriously in our mid-20s, but we were at least 10 years younger than anybody else in the room, all having our first kids. And then if you move here, we're late. We're going to be the, the old fogies. You know, not totally, but... And, and that's culture. That, that has everything to do, not with economics, but with theology. It has everything to do, not with the world out there, but what we think God is like, who we think he is. And this is a roundabout way for me to get to the point of saying... We need to know the love of God. The love of the Father. So that we can radically turn around and care about children with the same love he has loved us with. Amen? Amen. Okay, I know it's heavy stuff, but I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm just talking about news articles I've read. That's it. This is it. I'm not even like, this isn't even like Revelation Lake of Fire heavy, like last sermon or whatever it was. This is just me telling you about headlines that I read. 
that everybody knows is happening. This is not done in a corner. This is not secret exposés, the CIA files released after 50 years. This is just the news. I want to introduce you to somebody today, a gentleman in the truest form of that word. He loves kids, loves them, loves them, loves them, loves them, loves them. He only has one natural child, if I can put it like that. It's a son. But he's adopted hundreds of millions of children. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Some of you are those children. His name is the Father. And that's who he is. And that's what he does. His name is the Father the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father who sends the spirit of adoption into his adopted children. And the thing I love about the name Father, when talking about the Trinity, talking about God, is there is actually no name behind that name. You can talk about God, but that's kind of like a title, like officer or, you know, coach. It's a, it's a role. I'm God. And then you have different gods trying to take that role in your life. Then God gave us the name Yahweh, which is his intimate covenant name that Israel would know him by to remember that he brought them out of Egypt. But then in Christ, he revealed that his name is the Father. And then that's as steep as we get into knowing who God is. God is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Son comes from the Father and the Spirit comes from the Father. If you push with all that we know about God is far deep into who God really is, you stop at Father. That's who He is. It doesn't, it doesn't get any deeper. Not God Most High, not any, any name for God. It doesn't get any deeper than Father. And He's a Father to Christ and He's a Father through spiritual adoption to hundreds of millions of people. He loves children. And his, well, part of his kingdom mission, okay, to spread salvation throughout the world, to spread the knowledge of the glory of God throughout the world, to build local churches in every place in the world, to have his message go to every people group and every tongue throughout the world, to have his scripture translated into every language in the world, to have indigenous leaders in every people group in the world. However, all of this is his mission. Part of his mission is to create a people in the world who love children as much as he does. Let's read Mark for a second. We'll get to Matthew. Here's Jesus expressing the kingdom commitment to children as Jesus is trying to rebuke his disciples for their selfishness, which is often the issue. It's me or them. That's often the issue. When it comes to kids, it's me or them. And the reason we often find kids hard, this is no slam, you know it, I know it, is that they're better at being selfish than we are often, right? Like they come out of the womb and it's just like me. 
me milk me milk me milk me pee me pee me pee me poo me poo me poo me 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 hold me hold me hold me hold me hold me me sleep me not sleep me sleep me not sleep me 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 that's often the issue we think whoa if i get a bunch of those that's really going to cost me so jesus is uh walking with his disciples this is chapter 9 verse 33 and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, so they arrived, they get in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I love this little scene. So Jesus is going on ahead, everybody's thinking, oh, he's having a little prayer walk, let's just hang back a little bit, and just, hey, just to let you know I'm a way better preacher than you. And when Jesus comes into his kingdom, we all know who's going to be team leading pastor of the International Church of Christ. We all know. No, you're not, Peter. You, you still stink of fish. You're never going to get anywhere. Everybody knows I'm the son of thunder. Kaboom! You know, are you ready? When I get up in the pulpit, it's like, call down the lightning, you know? So they're having that thing. And, so, and then Jesus says, so what were you guys talking about? And it's like, I don't want to tell them. You tell them. I don't tell them. So all of a sudden, the conviction is right there. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If any of you would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child. Okay, this is where it gets awesome. And he took a child. The one person in the room that none of the disciples are looking at, thinking about, caring about. He's not in the running for being the most awesome. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms. Do you want to know what God is like? Christ taking this child in his arms, he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the kingdom culture towards children. If you will welcome a child for Jesus' sake, because, because you're a believer, God the Father walks in the room. It's like, this is where I want to be. And then the disciples try to change the subject for a little bit. And then Jesus picks up his discourse and he says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with, than with two hands go to hell. And he goes on from there. This is one of those moments where you get your concept of Jesus gets a little shaken up all of a sudden. Because he goes from, you guys got to love this kid, to if you cause this guy to stumble, death by drowning would be better than that. Okay, a millstone is this gigantic round stone with a hole in the middle that if you've been to uh, fall on the farm, you've seen one of these things, and then you turn the stone on top of another stone, and as the stones move together, they grind out the grain, and you get flour out the sides. But these things are just humongous. And Jesus is saying, if one of those things were tied to your neck, next time you go swimming at the Steinbeck Aquatic Center, that would be better than causing one of these children who believes in me to sin, to, to lead them out of faith. And all I'm trying to say this morning is that in the Father's house, in Christ's kingdom, it is a culture 
of caring for kids, radically, radically caring for children, radically caring about children. So what I'm saying this morning is that I want each one of us to know the love of God so that we can hand that on. I'm not saying you go figure out how to love kids all on your own and then if you come back, God might give you a brownie or he might give you a sticker or a lollipop or something. I'm saying to you, know the love of the Father. Make that your mission so that you can turn around and hand down to children in your life, whether natural children or natural extended family or in the classroom setting, if you're an EA or a teacher or grandchildren or neighbor's children, turn around and say, I'm going to do for you what my Father has been doing for me. Because that's what we're supposed to do. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says to us, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Who you are is a beloved child, so be like that. That's who you are. God loves you, so be like that. How does God feel about you? Thank you. These guys are so good. And it only took us half an hour of coordinating before the service to make it happen like that. Alley-oop, slam dunk. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What kind of child are you? Okay. How does God feel about you? Yeah. I still just seems really loud right here and really quiet everywhere else. This would be called the interactive portion of this message. This is where we don't go any further until I hear you saying something. Now, some people are kind of like, I don't like being manipulated like this. I'm just going to mouth the words. I will take just mouthing the words because then you will remember the time you just mouthed the words so that you didn't have to say what Rob said. And someone said, why did you just mouth the word? Well, because he wanted me to say that God loves me. Exactly. Sometimes I need to press the point. So allow me to press the point. What kind of child are you? You are loved by God. And out of that love, imitate God. And I'm saying towards children, the ones that God gives you to have impact on, whether they're older or younger, youth or toddlers. Amen? So what I want to do is I want to use the Lord's Prayer over the next few weekends as a tool for us learning to know how God loves us and then to turn around and pass that love on secondhand. And I know when I say secondhand, most people think, does that mean banged up and useless? Because you go to MCC and there's some real treasures in there, but then there's some other things. And so it's like, is this handing off my junk? And this is where the analogy breaks down. I'm not saying hand off your junk love. I'm saying receive the love of God and so use it and so wear it and so enjoy it that it becomes second nature and then like something that gets better over time hand it off to people who need it that's what I'm saying there and I want to use the Lord's Prayer so this is why let's show the Lord's Prayer and then I'll explain it okay thank you when I was hired at um, what used to be BioVail which doesn't exist anymore it's this factory in town First, I spent two weeks just reading papers and signing that I'd read it. It was wonderful. And, um, but then they put me into a process, which was called wash-up, where you had to clean stuff. And that, that's a funny story. My new boss came up to me, and, he's, and we're meeting our bosses for the first time, and we don't know what we're going to do there yet. And he says to me, so do you like washing things? And, and just so you know, young people, the answer is yes. But I was taken off guard, and so I said, 
is this a joke? Because <laughs> it was like, of course not. Who does? Um, lots of people, I found out later. But, uh, and so I got put up in this, in this wash-up area, but they didn't just throw me in there. They, they would pair you up with somebody who knew the ropes, who wasn't my boss, but was my trainer. Okay, so somebody who's kind of my peer-ish, so that I didn't have to always go and ask the boss, because sometimes it can be a little intimidating to ask the boss and just say, what are your expectations? In, expectations, excuse me. How does this all work? Um, you can share stuff with somebody who's more your peer, but knows how things work. Amen. You know what I'm talking about? And what I see going on here as Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's prayer, we know from Luke that they have seen Jesus praying and then they come to him and say, would you teach us to do it like that? Because we see you doing something that we were never taught to do growing up. And here's Jesus knowing that his mission is to die for their sins so that they can be adopted into Heavenly Father's family. And he seizes this moment to teach them as newbies into the kingdom of God, as new people, as adopted children, in, come into the house not knowing, you know, when's food time and am I allowed to go to the bathroom outside the toilet as well as inside the toilet? And um, if I pee on the bushes outside, is that okay? You know, there's all kinds of things to learn when you come into a new family or into a new situation. And here's Jesus being the go-between. He is the true son who knows how to relate to the father. And he sees them coming and saying, we don't know how to relate to him like you do. And he says, well, let me teach you what it's like to be a beloved child of God. This is how you relate to him. And so he teaches them to come to him like this. So I'm, what I'm really trying to say is this isn't just about learning the right words to mouth. This prayer time is about how to be a beloved child of God. So he says to them, our father in heaven, this is how you, how you talk to dad. You say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are such awesome words taught by God for us to say back to him. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And over the next few times I'm talking, I want to take those chunks and say, this is God's love for us. And this is how he invites us to come to him. And then we can turn around and share these kinds of things with the children that God has given to us. Amen. So let's just take the first chunk there. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing Jesus teaches us to do to relate to God as beloved children is to name him as our Father. I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the hardest things in the world for a Christian to do to actually believe that God loves us like the best dad loves his children. That's from experience. I see this from my own heart. I see this. It's not too hard to start tithing. It's not too hard to start showing up on a Sunday morning. It's even not too hard to be a host and hand out some bulletins. And it's even not that hard to work in children's ministry, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, arm twist, arm twist, bamboo shoots under the fingernails. Compared to all of that outward stuff, to truly receive the truth that God has without reservation adopted you to be his precious child is so hard for many of us. And so the first thing Jesus does is he says, whenever, 
<laughs> Every time. You want to talk to my dad because you're my new adopted brother, you're my new adopted sister. Every time I want you to say the truth, you're my dad. And I'm your kid. It's about affirming the reality of our new relationship. There's your $5 college words. Say it again in a simpler way. It's just saying the truth that God's adopted us. And out of that comes all the awesomeness. Oh, God. Guys, this was the whole point. This is the whole point. I did this sermon series, one of my favorite ones in my life. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that out loud, but I enjoyed that sermon series through Romans because I learned more than anybody else during that. But the whole point of Christ suffering for our sins and the gift of God saying to us, you can be totally right with me just by believing in me through Jesus Christ and him sending his spirit into us so that we can have joy to go through suffering in this life and then the joy of the hope that we're going to be with God forever and the joy in God knowing that it is all a gift that he has given to us and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can experience true change because we've really died with Christ and we really are alive with him through the spirit of God All of this culminates together into the end of Romans chapter 8 where Paul triumphantly says that I am convinced that neither death nor life nor heights nor depths or angels or demons or powers or principalities and anything else, and I'm kind of butchering it, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The point is death. which was totally impossible before Jesus came because we were by nature children of wrath and he didn't have to save us. He didn't have to choose us. But he wanted to and so he did. And so Jesus is just saying to us, this is how you be a beloved child of God. You come to him and you say, You're my dad. And Romans chapter 8 even says that God puts the spirit into our heart and the spirit inside of us says, hey, dopey, don't forget to call him Abba. Because I see your fear and I see your shame and I see your trepidation and I see you wanting to back away and you're blowing this prayer because you refuse to say, Abba, I love you and you love me. And he's probably more gentle than that, but sometimes I need to press a point. If you want to blow your prayer time, don't call him Father. Because Jesus says, you start by saying, you're my dad. I'm your kid. That's the truth. And it also affirms roles. By roles, I mean relationships with different responsibilities. Sometimes we can push against or reject the idea of roles in our cultures. We often find them a little bit constraining or a little bit depressing or something like that. You know, there's different things that Scripture talks about, people having different roles, and sometimes people really chafe against that stuff. And, but roles are just a relationship where we know whose job is what. And when we come to Dad and we say, my father, I'm affirming that it's his job to be Dad and my job to be the child. And not vice versa. Uh, it's, it's not my job to be God. There is not one situation that I will ever end up in where it's my job to be God. It's my job to be my own dad. 
I'm alone. I'm in charge. And if I make it, I make it. And if I don't make it, I don't make it. My job is to be a child. My job is to be needy. My job is to be helpless. My job is to be a lost. And I do that really well. Thank you, Corinne, for laughing because you were wasted. I'm, I'm really good at, at being, of needing help. That's my job. It's my job to be the kid. It's his job to be the dad. And so out of that, it's also my job to listen. It's my job to obey. It's my job to stand still when he wants to do good to me, not run away. That's my job. So when I say, Father, I'm confessing, it's my job to receive, your job to give, your job to know, my job to be taught, your job to do, my job to be a part of what you want me to do. And we can turn around and do this for children as well, because most of the children that we will come into contact with, we will have some kind of ongoing relationship, and we can affirm these things. So in the family, what I like to do with my kids is um, call them son and daughter. Um, I got some good counsel when I was younger. Somebody said to me, your kids will have lots of opportunities to have friends. They'll have lots of people that want to be their friends. They've only got one shot at having dad. So be that. Take that seriously. Don't try to be your friend, their friend when they need you to be dad. Or mom. Or auntie or uncle or grandma or grandpa or teacher. Or EA help. Or uncle or aunt from church. Don't try to be buddy when what they need is grandpa. Does that make you you're catching me here? And so we can say, I need to take serious the relationship I have here. And I need to take seriously the role I have here. And I need to do that well. And we all hope, I hope, that the kids who are all upstairs doing their thing and um, people are serving them and we can be grateful that they're serving us by serving them. We can all hope that as they become adults, we have rich friendships. But in order for them to become great adults, they need moms and dads and aunts and uncles and Pastor Robs and Elder Tonys and worship leader Lisa's and Corinne's. And they need us to take our roles seriously that God has given us to do. And in those relationships and in those roles, we're not on our own and we're not making it up and it's not about us. It's about us handing down what God has given to us to other people. It is so, such a relief to have a sense of self-forgetfulness when it comes to kids. It's not, a, it's not actually about me. It's all about the Lord. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. It's about handing down God to people. After God, Jesus wants us to start being beloved children by naming him as father and enjoying him as father. He says that your first request to him should be to say, hallowed be your name. Um, hallowed is one of those words that it's useful to have the pastor explain every time we come to this section of scripture. It means to make holy. It's a really old word. It means holy, but we still use it when we talk about Halloween. Halloween used to be the evening before All Saints Day. And Saint 
connects to the word holy. You'll have to trust me on this one. The saints had a day the night before. It was All Saints evening. It was All Hallowed's evening, and we call it Halloween. It means holy evening, essentially, or the, the, the evening where we remember the holy ones, which was all just a mess. Blah. But essentially, we're praying to God, would you make your name holy? Now, God is holy, so we're not asking him to become something he's not. What we're asking is that we would experience the holiness of God's fatherhood. That's what you're praying. God, I want to experience who you are in your holiness. That's, see, isn't this crazy? How do you act like a beloved child of God? You stand there and you say, you're my dad. Help me to experience your fatherhood. Make it real. Make it happen. Make, make me know that it's coming towards me and give me everything I need to experience it, appreciate it, see that it's happening, know that it's happening, and respond in ways that will help it to happen better. That's the first prayer. That's the beginning. So do you see how I feel like this is a legitimate thing to say that Jesus is teaching people how to be beloved children? Because the first prayer is, help me to experience your holy fatherhood. Now that word holy can be kind of frightening. Amen. it's not like a comfortable word. It's not like when you go home after a really long message that goes well into lunchtime, and it was like the pastor didn't even have this gigantic green clock showing him in the face that it was already late. It's like he never even saw it or just chose in his holy pastor heart to totally ignore it for the good of your souls. And you're finally at home and you got that cheeseburger because you're like, it's late and the drive through seems so easy. And you got the cheeseburger and the pop and you get down into your lazy boy and I'm going <clears> to... <throat> Nobody just says, holy, right? Because holy is like a serious word. Except sometimes people say it when they see something awesome, and they say, holy. But even then, there's like the remnants of this, this is awesome, I need to say the word holy towards this. And so to have a holy father can feel like we're saying, God, you're dangerous. But I've got good news for you. He absolutely is. That's why we have the blood of Jesus. That he is so unbelievably dangerously holy and that he gifts us the blood of his sacrificed son so that we as sinners can be safe in his holy presence. And now we get to enjoy his holiness. What do I mean by that? Uh, when I was growing up, maybe you were like this too, um, I, I had this assumption that my dad was like perfect. Anybody ever? You kind of start off with, Dad's perfect, pretty much awesomest. And, um, but as you get older, sometimes he, I found he would do some things that kind of shook that confidence a little bit. So one of the most memorable ones, and I've shared this before, um, but I'll share it again, was I think he was putting away the dishes in the dishwasher, and I think they slipped, and we had tiles in the kitchen, and so the plate just went... And then a, a word came out of his mouth that if it were on TV, would have gotten edited out. But because it was real life, there was no editing. And I was like, what? What? My dad doesn't know that word or say it. Like, I know that that word's out there, but I get a bar of soap put in my mouth if I ever say that word. True story. Sometimes at school. It happens. Like, you get your mouth washed out, and my dad just said that. This is, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is not right. 
And there would be other moments in life where something would happen. And he was just human, and it's not an issue. But I just see in that, even in my little unbelieving heart, this desire for holiness. Somebody perfect to love and who loves me. There's this, we have this desire. I want somebody pure and flawless and totally unfailing to love me and want me and to be there for me so that I can just be like, I can face anything because my dad is perfect. I know that there's a mess in the world. I know there's pain. I know there's injustice. I know there's wrong, but I can face that because my dad is holy. And we are like this. And so what I'm trying to say here is that the holiness of God for a Christian is not a reason to run away. It is the most beautiful thing you will ever see for us to enjoy and worship and then to be so grateful that it's ours forever. How do we, being loved by God by experiencing his holiness, his perfections, his flawlessness, we share these things by seeking holiness for ourselves to do other people good. We sanctify ourselves for the sake of children. We ask God to change us, to make us better for other people's sakes. Now, Jesus did something like this. In John, the gospel, in that great section where he's praying to God, his high priestly prayer, he prays this to his father. He says, he's praying for his disciples. He says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's made them into a different thing. You aren't of the world if you're a Christian. You're a new creation. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So here's Jesus looking at his mission. And he says, I have set myself apart to you, Father, so that my disciples have an increased capacity to be holy. See that? He says, I, I will, I've completely obeyed you. I've rejected the temptations of Satan. I'm willing to go to the cross so that my disciples can be sanctified in the truth. He says, I'm willing to do this so that for their sake. And we are called to do the same thing for the sake of children, to grow in Christ, to put away sin, to overcome stuff. Um, there's this super, super awesome lady that I know. So great, super beautiful. She totally floats my boat. And uh, but when she was growing up, her mom—you know who I'm talking about here. Like this is not some really gross, awkward moment for me, at least. Um, I know who I'm talking about. When she was growing up, her mom had a really rough go of it. Like she, she herself had a really tough childhood, which was impacting her life and. It was not uncommon, as far as I understand the story, for her just to be in bed for most of the day. So that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. But by the grace of God, uh, before she was killed in a car accident, um, she started to get some real freedom. She was connecting with a pastor. She was talking through her issues. There's actually Pastor Bryski here in Calvary Chapel, so I think it actually all happened in that front office. And she was talking through stuff and believing the truth. And the testimony is she was starting to have some real joy in Jesus. And then she died. 
And Jackie and I both agree, we see it, it's true, that Jackie's life was set up for overcoming because she saw it happen in her mom. So she knows that Jesus changes people. This is not something she wonders about. Can people get over stuff? She's like, no. My mom died a totally different person than she was two years before the accident happened. And so she's got confidence and faith. And, so for, and then two things, which have been really good for me. Um, the first is that um, she has constant faith that God can change me, which can challenge most people's faith walks. I think there's people who could raise people from the dead but still look at Rob and go, that boy. But she also is the fastest to change person I know. We talk about something and she realizes there's an issue. It's, it changed so fast because she saw somebody who got sanctified, who went through the work to be changed by Jesus and it totally radically changed her faith in life. So what I'm saying is that this is an illustration of a parent being changed by Christ, being set apart, becoming more holy for the sake of the next generation. So there's a couple of things in church life that can be areas where adults and parents interacting with children could probably look at for areas of possible growth. Um, Two particularly I want to mention would be anger and distraction. Anger is one of those things that can kind of exist under the surface in church life. Um, it often doesn't flare up on a Sunday morning necessarily or not outside of the van or the car or whatever it is. We can usually hold it together, hold your breath long enough to get through a Sunday morning without really having an uh, ep- episode or something like that. And so it's actually one of those experiences in church where kids can grow up um, in a home full of unpleasant anger, unrighteous anger, but it not getting dealt with because people don't necessarily see it or it's not taken as a serious thing. And then the kids grow up going, well, I saw this stuff and then I saw this stuff and I guess this isn't really true and why would I want a part of this? And the reality is, is that anger can just really impact children who grow up around it. It can make us, sorry, it can make kids um, anxious. It can make them hard to trust. It can make them flighty. Um, we can do lots of stuff. And so this morning, I'm just tagging this as one of the things that the loving father wants to set his children free of so that they can turn around and love their kids with the love that God has given them. Anger, unrighteous anger. Now, everybody experiences anger, um, especially when you're in the kitchen doing the dishes and your son runs up behind you and punches you in the backside, that one place that you cannot protect yourself from, there's a chance that you're going to experience anger there. The scripture says it's what you do with it that counts. In your anger, do not sin. And so I'm just saying, I I just want to say, um, if you think this is you, in the name of the Father's love, let's deal with it. Let's get free. In the name of the Father who loves you, you can win, you can be free, and you can 
change the future of the children who are connected with you. The other thing I want to talk about is just distraction. It could be a phone, it could be a career, it could be uh, something. And essentially, distraction when it comes to children is just failing to recognize how valuable and vulnerable are the people right in front of you. Just not getting it. Just kind of never checking in how their hearts are doing, never finding out how the school is going. Just as long as they're quiet in front of the television, everything's okay. As long as I can send them off to school in the morning, then fine, because I've got a lot of important things to do here. Um, that kind of distraction, just not seeing what's right in front of you, that, that is something we need to be really aware of and resist, because these are little souls, and even when they're tiny, they carry huge weights, and somebody needs to pay attention to what's going on inside of them. So distract, And distraction can be really deadly. I mean, uh, thank the Lord nothing bad happened, but, you know, just even this week or two weeks ago, there's somebody driving along a prairie road with a big rig with like, I think it was a double B or something, two tanks full of fuel, 51,000 liters of gasoline and diesel, and somehow manages to drive off the road in the prairies. You know how hard it is to drive off the road in the prairies. It's, n- it's not easy. It's like there's, there's usually most, almost another lane of pavement beside the road. This is on like the number one or something like this. And uh, it's just, and it's, it's all, it's flat. And there's not a lot of corners. So somebody was not paying attention. 51,000 liters of fuel on fire. Which is different than the other news thing that was up in the last couple of weeks. A truck driver who was trying to, I think, um, get a retrial for his case, which was denied. He was driving in Saskatchewan or Alberta, I can't remember. Again, just straightness wasn't paying attention, and all of a sudden there was a car with three teenagers underneath his truck. All dead. His defense? I just wasn't paying attention. So what I'm saying is, we know a God who never sleeps and never stops looking at us. We are more valuable than the sparrows. Every single hair on our head is numbered and counted daily. The number goes down for most of us guys. High five, high five, high five. We make his job easier daily, but he is <laughs> counting our hairs every single day. There isn't a moment in our lives where he ever blinks from watching us and taking care of our souls. Now, we're not God, but as people who have children in our lives, we need to pay attention to how they're really doing. If we don't know, we need to find out. Wouldn't you agree? So it's one o'clock, which tells me it's time to really start preaching. (laughs) Because I know that this topic is naturally discouraging to people. Whenever you start talking about marriage or parenting, everybody starts going, oh, my failures. Right? The other thing would probably be finances. Oh, my failures. Oh, my failures. And this is why I'm being so purposeful to say to you, I am not telling you to get your stuff together in your parenting. I am telling you, by the grace of God as a friend, I am telling you, get loved by God. Don't let anything stop you from knowing in your heart of hearts, in the depths of your soul, how much the Father really loves you through Jesus Christ. Because it is only out of that that any real child care comes, handed down. Know that God loves you. Know it. Think about it. 
And if you can't do it on your own, which you can't ask God to make it so real to you, that he really loves you. Man, my prayer times are just such a mess. I get in the mind and it's, oh, I got to listen. Then I just go, dad, it's over. Because he, he really loves us in Jesus. So much soul. This is the one I, that I can hardly even begin to look at. That he sends his own spirit to live in me. Like, I like my kids lots, and I love them lots, but there is no way that I can actually take my love and have it be something and then put it inside of them to live. But God the Father loves you so much that he put away all of his anger and all of the possible judgment against us. He sacrificed his son to put it all away so that there's no barrier between you and him. And I mean that. There is no barrier between you and the Father's love through Jesus Christ. That's why he came. And then on top of that, he takes his spirit and he puts inside of you so that you are the temple of God. That's who you are. That's who I am. It's like, that is too much. That is too much. That is like, somebody needs to arrest that guy. He's just too, he's blowing his inheritance on a bunch of people like me. Somebody got to chain that guy up, throw him in prison, kick the door in. You're nuts. Because his love is nuts to us. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's awesome. It's so good. He loves you. And out of that love, he says, anything's possible. Because when we hear about change, oh, Rob's calling us for change. You got to get beat of sin. He says, the spirit, I got sins. I got to get over sins. And I'm clicking on this. And I'm looking at this. And I'm acting like this. And I'm stuck in this. He's like, there's no possible way. Nothing can change. Nothing can change. I don't see the way out. Nothing can change. Nothing can change. It's like so tough, Rob. It's so tough that in order for anything to change, I would need like an unlimited source of power. Because it's so impossible to change. I'm so stuck that the only way that I would be able to change is if I could find a power that was like strong enough to, I don't know, raise somebody from the dead or something like that. That would be the only way. And so I just want to remind you, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I just want to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you Lord willing, through the laying on of somebody's hands. Because God has not given you a spirit of fear or cowardice or despair. He has not given you that spirit. The Holy Spirit does not come into your life and say, you're the one person who can't make it. Sorry. Most people are way, have way more potential. I don't know what it is with you. You just... I've done a lot of work, you know, Lazarus got him out of the grave and there was that guy at the, the funeral that raised him from the dead and then all those lepers, that was easy. But you, you're the one person I can't help. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's me, probably not. Must be you. You have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love, and self-control. I know all the people from the first service know that what's coming now, and I hope you're happy. I want you to say the word power. Power. 
Thank you. I want you to say it really loud. One, two, three. What is the characteristic of the spirit that God has given you? He is a spirit of what? Okay, how much power? Unlimited. Uh, thank you, unlimited power. The Spirit of God has not found one thing yet He cannot do, if He wants to. And His desire is to be a source of unlimited power for victory in Christians. You've been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. Aren't those the three things we feel like we don't have when it comes time to change? I don't have the power, I don't feel the love, and there's no way I can have self-control. You have the Spirit of God, Christian, who is those things. He is a Spirit of power. He is the Spirit of love. You say, I don't love children. That's why I can never sign up for children's ministry. But you have the Spirit. He can make you love anybody because He loves them and He is the Spirit of love. You say, I cannot control my behavior or my actions. I tell you that you have the Spirit of self-control. And yes, there is a process. And yes, there is walking in the light. And no, it does not happen overnight most of the time because he wants you to know his love not just fix you. Did you know that's why? Because we want to like a, we just want to drive through oil change with God. Well, I just need some new oil and uh, never be angry again and then I'll see you later. Here's 50 bucks. That's what we want with God. And God's like, I want children. I want children, so I'm going to do this in a way where you have to learn that I love you. Which means letting you sit in your sin while I love you and you don't love you. And then you turn and say, you still love me when I don't love me? And God says, yes! That's the whole point of the cross. This thing is about learning that God loves you even when you don't love you. And when you start to get it, he loves you when you don't love you. Then he says, now that the big problem is solved, let's start dealing with this little stuff. You need some power? You need help loving? You need some self-control? I can do that. But the first thing, the most important thing, is the spirit inside of you shouting out, Abba, 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 you are actually my dad. Not just a drive-through oil change. Amen? So I'm, I'm here to, I just, it's hope time, Christian. And yeah, this afternoon is going to be hard, and so is tomorrow. One of the greatest gifts God has given me. When I'm seeing my faults and my failures, I'm so frustrated, I'm stuck. I pray, and then I leave it with God. I say, God, would you disciple me in the area of patience? Will you make me like you? You love me. I'm leaving it with you. And then he does. On his schedule, on his time. But he does do it. He, that's the craziest thing. He does do it. But when we're all like, it's all about me and I got to get it done my time because I feel bad about myself. He says, that's the issue I want to deal with first. I'm not going to help the patients until you know I love you because that's the issue. That's the issue. That is the issue of your life, Christian. Or maybe it's just me. Why don't we pray? If you want to stand, if you just want to say yes to God by standing, you're welcome to do that. You don't have to. God, I love you. 
but not even a little bit as much as you love me. God, I can't even begin to imagine letting my child suffer and die for my enemies, but you loved me like that. I am so grateful I know in my heart that I genuinely hated you for a long time. And then you saved me because you wanted me to know that your love is way bigger than my sin or my rebellion or my hatred of you. God, I pray for every single person here that we would just hear your spirit saying, it's about knowing that God really loves you. And God, I pray that you would help us take our eyes off of the idol of personal performance and put it on the cross of Jesus Christ and just surrender. And God, my prayer is that as we surrender and we know your love, the spirit of God would empower us to radically love children in every area that you give us to do it, with the patience of Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.